you see lots of Fortune 100 companies, Fortune 1000 companies standing up their own geopolitical intelligence unit inside of corporate security that actually is getting as much visibility as that executive protection boss. But now companies are relying upon their internal security team to be that provider of the analytical content on the world stage. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. The evolution of protective intelligence and EP. Today, Sean West and myself are delighted to be hearing from the one and only Fred Burton, Executive Director at the Centre for Protective Intelligence. How are you doing, Sean, and why is protective intelligence such an exciting topic for our audience? Hi, Pelham. I'm feeling great. Thank you very much. And it's it's definitely great to have someone of the stature of Fred Burden on the show. So it'd be good to hear what he's little nuggets of information he brings. But protective intelligence, um, I mean, it's it's hugely important. It's a growing skill and desired skill within our sector of, of EP. But, you know, I think one of your recent events, there was a couple of people talking about it. What, what's the benefits? How does it look if you're an EP agent wanting to get into, offer this as a service, learning more about protective intelligence? And it, it's hard to differentiate. Is it a skill in its own right? Or the best way to describe it is, you know, one one can be a jack of all trades and a master of none. Is that the route to go down? Is is the more rounded operator someone who has got a skill set, being an analyst and seeking intelligence and information to provide to their client or should they focus on the hard skills of what their their role is um, and I, I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer it all depends on who the client is what the budgets are for that particular family organization or whoever they are because from, from a government perspective you have unlimited resources in the private sector some clients maybe not so the need for a, a, you know, an executive protection operator to grow their own skill sets of learning open source intelligence for their own background and personal development because they can offer more because not everyone's going to pay for that dedicated service, I guess. That's right. Yeah. And and, and that brings into question whether or not we're talking the protective intelligence specialist or as, as you say, jack of all trades, is it something embedded into everyone? Maybe we're using third parties, um, but, but, but it really gets the core of the future protector. And, and maybe, do you know what? It's it's better to look at the future protector as one with a protective intelligence skill set as well. I'm just throwing it out there. Maybe we can put it to Fred. Than to say, oh, you can't code. You can't do cybersecurity. You can't do a very specific TSEM. Maybe maybe the umbrella term of protective intelligence is a better approach. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think any operator, you know, t- when you're growing your skill set and you want to provide better service, Dipping your toe in all of these areas, you know, protective intelligence, surveillance awareness, you know, keeping your med training going, keeping everything going, all of these little skill sets that build up your persona, that the service that you can offer is a good thing. So I think definitely, you know, this area is growing. It's one that I'm certainly interested in. We should be looking at these sort of things because you'll be able to offer a better service and give better advice to your client. 
Should it be required? So I, I don't think there's anything wrong in looking at, at growing your skill set in that area. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, throwing yourself all in and actually doing it as a career. I like it. Well, well, let's let's get into it with Fred and let's uh, really bring some extra value to our to our audience. It's a great honor to finally welcome uh, Fred Burton, Executive Director, Center for Protective Intelligence to the podcast to talk evolution of protection in protective intelligence and EP. And now, let's meet one of the contributors to The Circuit magazine. The evolution of protective intelligence and EP. We're delighted to welcome the one and only Fred Burton, Executive Director, Centre for Protective Intelligence at Ontic. How are you? I'm wonderful, Phelan. Thank you so much for having me on the programme. Well, I'm, I can't believe we haven't had you on sooner. And of course, there's there's a there's a great ecosystem that has encouraged us to come together as well. But we'll get into that. Um, we, we, we're talking today about the evolution of protective intelligence and EP. And of course, we know uh, why we might be talking to you about uh, EP. But protective intelligence, what is, what is the problem that it's trying to solve for the protector? Uh, is, is it simply informing them about relevant events? Or is there something a bit deeper? Well, it's actually a wonderful topic, and we could probably do a PhD thesis and spend uh, three hours just discussing this. But, you know, at the end of the day, Phelan, when uh, I was part of the program that uh, developed the protective intelligence concept or model at the State Department Diplomatic Security Service in the 1980s, and in essence, everything that we were doing from the protection side just simply wasn't working. And the more and more I started to dissect attacks, either on diplomatic personnel, the private sector, hostage taking or whatever, I uncovered tremendous gaps in our knowledge base. And I kind of figured that if we started looking for threat actors and trying to collect the dots so we could connect the dots that perhaps we could get in front of some of these attacks from an attack cycle perspective, which always begins with that intelligence collection of the target. Uh, it always begins with uh, a concept that I've written about for years called pre-operational surveillance. So uh, we were fortunate to have some very good bosses in the 80s that listened and uh, allowed us to uh, apply that model for the likes of Princess Diana, the British royals, uh, the children when they would come with uh, Diana, uh, the likes of Yasser Arafat and Nelson Mandela when he was released from prison. And then, uh, as others have said, uh, I, I was the one that transitioned this concept into the private sector uh, in late 1998 and early 1999. And, you know, in many ways, it's become uh, the base, or some have said the gold standard for how you protect CEOs, companies, and and so forth. Okay, and, and I'd like in a little bit to get into why that's a baseline, because, you know, some people might say, oh, it's uh, gates, guns, and guards, or something like that, right? And, and of course, I'm, I'm on your side there. 
Um, but what about you? Um, uh, what, what, where does your passion for this really come from? Um, uh, maybe a bit about your background you've already explained, but, but where does your passion come from? Well, uh, it's a good question. I'm sure uh, some of the shrinks that may watch this may, uh, may uh, key on a few things. Um, when I was growing up, uh, I had uh, an Israeli air attache that uh, was assassinated in my neighborhood when uh, I was a teenager. And so uh, I joined uh, our local rescue squad uh, that, that actually responded that night to uh, the political assassination of this Israeli diplomat in the in the 1970s. And then I became a police officer and in the same town and county where this crime occurred. Uh, and then I became a, a State Department uh, special agent uh, fellow in, in the days of uh, the hijackings and embassy bombings and hostage takings. And uh, I, I don't know why, but uh, right out of basic agent training, I was assigned to our counterterrorism division, which was just basically three of us for the world, and I had the Middle East, so uh, my responsibility was, you know, the groups like Hezbollah, uh, Black September, um, all of your your radical at that time Soviet-backed uh, organizations such as um, the Red Army faction, the Italian Red Brigades, the Japanese Red Army, uh, and. Uh, our counterterrorism division became uh, the protective intelligence division uh, after after studying all these attacks and knowing that we had to fill these gaps to try to keep our people alive. So, you know, whether it was fate uh, or just uh, my my life falling into these different positions, Phelan, uh, it's something that I'm not so sure I would call it a passion. It's just what I do. Mm. No, no, I think I think many could resonate with that. Obviously, not with the illustrious history you've got, but 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 with that with that sort of, um, you know, it is it is what you have become. Um, so 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 I think I think that is very fair. Um, but what about the uninitiated protector? And by that, I'm thinking the protector that's never really thought of, that they're involved in protective intelligence. They they sort of leave it to others. They don't know enough about the whole concept. Where where should they begin? That's a great question. Uh, I certainly would encourage uh, anybody interested in either how to start or develop a protective intelligence program to uh, visit our Center for Protective Intelligence, which is the purpose as to why we develop this think tank to be thought leaders in this space. And I'm truly honored to be able to run that and to research and to look at things from the lens of a protective intelligence aspect and then try to apply some of the things I've learned over the years to still fill gaps. And there's still gaps that are out there, Phelan. So uh, to those that want to learn more about this, there's a, there's a wealth of material uh, on our center. And then there's obviously wonderful organizations such as ATAP, uh, as well as uh, as is that has various online training, uh, and you know, look, I'm I'm a student of protection history. You know, I go back to look for certain events that have really transformed our industry. I gave a 
keynote to the State Department uh, a couple years back at one of the OSAC conferences where I, I looked at certain almost 10-year blocks where our industry has shifted going back to the 60s, which created, for example, campus police departments. Uh, the chief security officer really came out of that time frame. And then you look into the 80s where you had international security managers that were developed as a result of hijackings and the murders and kidnappings of business people overseas. So as you look at that from the landscape of a rear view mirror, you can see how this industry has changed. And one of the things that I've noticed in our space and the time that I've been involved with our center, which has been about three years now, is that we have a rapidly evolving field of this concept that really warms my heart called the protective intelligence analyst, because I actually created that first position when, when I first transitioned to the private sector. So uh, when you combine a protective intelligence analyst with a protector as a practitioner, you really can leverage that. And it's a concept that uh, I actually kind of started back in the 80s when I used to drag analysts uh, kicking and fighting to the actual debriefing of either victims of terrorist attacks or in some cases suspects or sources inside of organizations. So to help them better understand the TikTok as to how some of these attacks are put together. That's that's uh, that's great advice, and I and I think maybe maybe we will see that that merger uh, a little bit more um, with 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 roles or or at least collaboration. Um, but taking a step back and trying to head off some questions that our protector community might have, um, you managed to move this concept from the State Department to the private sector, and the State Department and government often has larger resources than the private sector. Um, what message can we give right now to private security professionals to say, do you know what, this is 100% in your remit, in your ballpark, you don't have to have the might of the State Department behind you? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that I've gotten a lot over the years. And in essence, when I transitioned this concept into the private sector, I was reasonably confident that the counter surveillance component of the actual practical application and a protector's role in the private sector would work because I had many, many CEOs tell me this. I want security, but I don't really want to see it. And I said, well, heck, that's easy. We had been doing that for years and had a very good track record in the public sector of keeping an eye on the likes of a Salman Rushdie or a Yasser Arafat or uh, Harry uh, and um, William when they were children. I was a bit concerned of losing access to all the different intelligence resources you have at the federal level, which can be overwhelming. So in many ways, you really had the shackles come off when you're in the private sector because you're not burdened by that classified take, air quote take, that if it's not classified secret or top secret or even confidential, then how am I going to do my job? And in many ways, I still see that transition problem 
with people that I mentor that look to transition out of the government. Because one day you see everything that five eyes could ever produce, and the next day you don't. And you're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? And so the whole concept of protective intelligence is one that you really have to start looking for the needles, but the haystack is not as large. And you'll very quickly learn that you no longer really have to worry about a thousand different problems in the private sector. You have to look at your footprint. You have to look at the profile of your company. You have to look at the profile of your executives and really get some clarity down to those potential threat actors that could be affecting them with an eye towards doing this in a very cost-efficient manner, which is why at a practical application, the counter-surveillance component of protective intelligence is just picture perfect for the kind of work we do. And, and quite frankly, we do work with some of the largest companies in the world, and everyone is utilizing this model today that I'm aware of, or taking components of it and plugging and playing it into how they're actually doing their job, because no two programs are alike. The Secret Service program is much different than what the State Department's program is, which is different from what the U.S. Capitol Police is, different from the Supreme Court Police, different from the CIA. And then as you step into the private sector, no two programs are really identical. They've adapted to the business needs of that company. And and so that's that's sort of reassuring because it means that you know it, it will adapt to your size. It, you know you, you could be a solo operator, you could be a, a a really large team. But then but then drilling down, I wonder who is protective intelligence. And that's a, bit, a weird way to phrase it, but is it uh, is it needed to have a protective security or protective intel analyst in every team? Or is it the job of every operator? Is it the job of every team leader? Or is it something they leave to a third-party SOC? I've seen all of the above. And uh, ideally, when I'm doing uh, advice or consulting from individuals for, or for companies that are looking to either begin these programs, the first thing is to understand from your own threat landscape, what is that baseline and what is the threats that's uh, affecting you? And again, uh, that's going to vary depending upon the industry and sector you're in, the profile of your CEO, and, and a list of baseline questions. So for example, is your CEO Jewish? Uh, do you have operations in places that are very dangerous like uh, Iraq or uh, Lebanon at times, uh, uh, or in, operating in Israel? Or are you just focused on uh, a, a building around London uh, or uh, in New York City. So it's going to vary. And then as you start to put your team together, I always hire with an idea of, I don't care about your background per se. I don't care about your certifications per se. Are you inquisitive? What is your quality of mind? Are you desirous of uh, doing the job? Uh, do you like to uh, do this kind of work? For example, uh, are you good at writing? Are you good at observing? 
Uh, or are you that kind of operator that just wants to do that advanced work uh, and is really not interested in expanding that bubble a little bit? So I think the beauty of this business is that you literally can multitask and do all of the above at times, or depending upon the size of your team and program, you can laser focus on what truly uh, inspires you or challenges you. Uh, because I have found over the course of, I don't know, 40 years now of doing this, that you would be surprised as to who is good at this at times. You can take that crusty old burned out officer that um, uh, nobody really wants on the team at times, to be blunt, but you'll find that they can be very unique in perhaps an observation or a counter surveillance position. And they also could potentially be very good at an analytical kind of valuation of certain things. So uh, I think that depends a lot upon uh, the size of your team the leadership of your team, and the mindset of those that are driving uh, either the company or your unit, or if you're that lone practitioner, you know, what kind of contracts are you working on? And and I guess depending on size, it depends, you know, what you need. So as, as we move to more tech-based uh, aids, you know, there are, there are more tech SaaS platforms out there that, that help, you know, with this. The question I tend to get on a podcast is, well, how do I make it relevant? And especially if I'm obtaining it through tech, if, if, if it is that, shall we say, crusty old operator, which, you know, you, you, you paint a picture of, um, who, who's got a, amazing analytical capabilities, then, then they know how to tailor it. But but as people buy off-the-shelf solutions and SaaS platforms, um, how can we ensure that that is tailored? Uh, especially when we, we're dealing with a range of people from a solo operator through to a you know big Nasdaq 500 uh, company. Great question. And uh, well, I would like to think, and I have no doubt that uh, the platform that that our company offers is the gold standard. Uh, or to be blunt, I would not be here. And I can say that with a high degree of certainty. Now, I know that platforms like what we have and others that are in this competitive space can be filtered and tailored to your unique, to your unique collection needs. However, I think it's critical if you're in this business that you really do a lot of benchmarking to see with comparable teams, what are others using? And is there, for example, today, a mobile application that you have? Because I think that's been critical and that's really been a transition shift in our industry. When I first started in this business, we didn't have cell phones. We had typewriters and three by five index cards. So when you look today at what you can do with your mobile and you want to have that capability because of the travel and then just basics, if you are trying to protect an estate of an ultra high net worth individual, you want your midnight crew to be able to rapidly report suspicious events. So mobile is critical in this business. So I would encourage anybody that's looking for these kinds of platforms to make sure that the platform also has the ability to plug and play and to integrate 
other components that you might already have. So for example, I know from many of the Fortune 100s that we work with, a lot of them have their own internal kind of incident reporting system or investigative capabilities that they that they share across the spectrum between loss prevention and supply chain and, and travel. So you want to be able to integrate that into a platform. You want to be able to integrate in license plate readers if you have that capability. You want to be able to have that mobile application, but then you also want to want it to be able to filter down on sensitive like kinds of investigations. So for example, if you're including insider threat on that, that not everybody needs to see that, right? It depends upon, again, your remit. It depends upon uh, the kind of business that you're involved with. And I know, for example, we have many, many clients that are literally one-person shops. And then we have clients that have thousands of security personnel. So you want a platform, regardless of who you choose, that has the ability to scale. Because your three-person security team may be 12 people next year, and it may be 50 people three years from now, and as you grow. So um, there's a lot of good choices out there in this space today. And I'm really very excited as we look over the horizon of other things that could possibly be coming that you're going to want to integrate. For example, like drones. Well, I, I, I think drones will be a fascinating angle. And, and I remember when I I run an annual uh, CP Tech Forum, and one year we got some drone pilot uh, teachers, and we said, "Does everyone need a drone license in the future?" You know, so so that there is all of that. But but the other type of feed, which I don't know, it's sort of a chicken and egg, or is it a solution in search of a problem? Problem in search of a solution? Cyber threat intelligence. I I can't quite get my head around where CTI is going to get into the day-to-day -day operations of a, of a protector or or maybe a protection team. So maybe maybe I'll formulate that into another question. Are, are there any limits on protective intelligence where we got to say, do you know what, we hand it over to another discipline? It's, I think, one of the more unique challenges in our industry, not only as we are operating today, but on the horizon, meaning... You see a lot on LinkedIn in the echo chamber of cyber physical convergence. Well, what really is that? Does that mean standing up a fusion center or a GSOC that has a combination of cyber and physical? I've seen that. As we know in this business, cyber and IT almost speak a different language versus physical. And over in the physical side, we have our own way of doing things. So at times, the integration of those two can be challenging. Now, where I see it really, really taking, taking off over the past 18 months is in the insider threat space, where you see that convergence of investigators, physical security practitioners, executive protection personnel, a little bit on the periphery, but concerned about that insider threat that may try to approach the CEO or their family. Uh, so I look as the insider threat is almost the model of how it could work efficiently. And I know many, many companies that have gone down that path and I see that just simply growing. And at the end of the day, it boils down to, again, 
what are your collection requirements, right? What are you trying to collect against? Are you trying to collect against that insider that's working in a sophisticated lab that may try to run off or sell that intellectual property that's taken you two years to develop? Are you trying to watch that disgruntled insider that uh, has a bone to pick with their boss and may come in with a pistol one day? So, or all of the above. So you have to set your requirements for what you're trying to collect against from a threat perspective, and then stand up accordingly those internal subject subject matter experts in that space. And if need be, bring in a little, maybe a little outside third-party embeds or consult consultants to help you find unique kinds of things that you might be looking to collect against. I like that because 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 that's a roadmap, isn't it? You know, what are you protecting against? It, it, it could it, it could have a cyber element. It, it could also maybe not. Uh, it's just, just depends what you're protecting against. Um, but then going back and I and I, I often like to put myself in the shoes of a protector who says, well, well, well what sort of skills am I going to need and how am I going to get them? Um, I want to formulate a question about fear of missing out because at the the latest forum where uh, Chuck Randolph very very kindly moderated a, a panel in London, um, uh, they mentioned you know that there's perhaps a fear of being seen to not know things, which could drive the clamor for all intelligence. Um, you know what's going on in this country that is completely not relevant. Uh, there's there's a fear they want to know about it in case they might get caught out or or, or so on. Um, is that going to ever go away? Is that a solvable problem? Um, is, is it literally a case of team leader says I do everything and you get told what you should know? How how can we how can we mitigate a fear of missing out? I think it's a fascinating question because uh, I think the nature of the kind of people that we are in this business is. We're naturally inquisitive. We watch the world. We look at events such as balloons floating over the United States, and we are fixated on that. But at the end of the day, what's the probability and likelihood of that Chinese balloon uh, targeting my specific footprint? Probably highly remote. So I think it's critical in moments like this where there's so much going on in the wor world, such as the war in Ukraine the shadow war in Ukraine, meaning if you have operations in that region or you're supporting that in some capacity, then yes, you have to be laser fixated on those threat streams and the ramifications of that. But if you have nothing to do with what's going on there, that's the kind of problem that your GSOC or your intelligence analyst or that protector really shouldn't be spending all their time worrying about, collecting about, studying it. I would refocus their interests back into the threats that are driven towards your company. And I've had many, many, many clients that are starting up operations at some of the world's largest companies. And at times they don't know where to begin. And I think what happens in this space is that if you are a protector and you're plugged into an existing program, you'll hear, well, this is the way we've always done it before. When I hear that, it tells me that really needs to be re-looked at because I guarantee you that there's things you could update, fix, correct 
course correct if this is the way we've always been doing that. And that was one of, if I can digress in early on in my career, when I first approached our director with this concept of protective intelligence, and one of the questions back to me was, well, you know, we've been protecting people this way since the 1950s. And I said, well, we haven't been doing it very efficiently or effectively to be blunt, boss. And he said, well, you know, you've touched on a good point. So I think in this business, uh, you always have to be able to reset and relook and to rethink how you're doing things, regardless of the size of your team. And I've always found that fresh eyes helps with that. It's much like cold case investigations, fellow. Your best eyes is someone that's never looked at that case before to go through that, to say, hey, what about this? The same thing can be applied to any of these programs. Now, look, I'm a realist. A lot of programs don't want that for fear of being exposed instead of fear of missing out. But sometimes the best things you can do is to have someone else take a look at your program and provide some constructive criticism as to some things that you should think about. All things being considered, budget, manpower, staffing, corporate culture, you name it. So so does that, I, I mean, I like that. So do, if we run with that, does that have implications for standards? Because the moment someone sets one, it should be relooked, you know, looked looked at it again. It should be it should be evolving. It should be an organic uh, document. And I don't want to draw us into maybe, you know, the 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 wonderful world of standard arguments. Who who knew that the question about standards would be such a hot potato? But um, <laughs> do, do 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 you think that 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 we could become advocates for for rolling review or um, how how does that work? Because it, you mentioned initially that you, you advocate pre-ops surveillance. Um, where does that sit, for example, with, you know, advanced work? Um, and, and and in which case, does that mean we have to completely relook at everything each time or, or are there certain standards we can go by? I think when you look at this concept of standards, I think that uh, there are some minimal basic things that really need to be done However, I can say with, with a high degree of certainty that just because it's written down doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be followed. I've investigated a lot of attacks, for example, on embassy security, which have more standards than probably anything you can imagine, and still you'll have successful uh, threat actors uh, be capable of carrying out all kinds of different attacks because they've adapted their threat model after looking at your standards. And I think that the problem with our business is you can get stuck in that mindset that, well, I've done my due diligence. I've driven that route. Uh, I know uh, where we're going to drop the protectee off. I know what door we're going to enter. I've gone through the motions. And it's been my experience in this business that when you're just going through the motions, doing the basics that are required, you usually miss a lot of things. You miss 
the ability to step back and to kind of holistic look at what you're doing. And therefore, that's why I am a proponent of having others, for example, red team your operations, or even taking the newest person on the job to say, what do you think we're doing here that works? What do you think we're doing here that doesn't work? And what would you do differently? Now, I'm very uh, open to that kind of idea. I know a lot of people aren't. I'm the boss. This is the way it's been done. And this is what I want you to do. But in reality, to me, it's always best to try to have divergent thought process, even contrarian thought process, and even an alternative analysis as to whatever kind of problem that you're looking at. Because in essence, in many ways, that will raise discussions as to how you could do things a little bit better and in all probability expose weaknesses into your program. And sometimes, especially for those programs that are air quote well-established, well, we've always used that same driver and this is always that limo company we've used in London. Well, let's stop back and think for a minute now. Does that limo company have uh, continuous monitoring of their drivers? Uh, has that limo company um, kept up with uh, you know new vehicles? Uh, are we utilizing the same driver or is it one person differently in that job every other day? So uh, I think evaluation of all these programs is always good and should be ongoing. That's why there's never enough there's never enough manpower in many ways to do everything that needs to be done in this space. That's why it takes good bosses, good leadership to say, with the manpower that I have, what can I apply to a specific problem realistically? Okay. And 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 so, you know, not everyone will have the manpower for an entire protective intelligence team. Some people will rely on third parties. Um, some, some people seem to be very, very interested in uh, social media intelligence um and and i guess then we had we had a segment on the gray professional and 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 all of that but but with social media intelligence and with the evolution of protective intelligence when you're relying on some more automated factors i, I spoke before about tailoring it but what about the challenge of where maybe you know, you put good stuff into the machine, good stuff comes out of the machine, right? Um, what if what supposedly? If, so, 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 supposedly, um, we 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 had a, a while ago the example of I want to know about any floods. Um, floods were not mentioned, uh, but sluice gates opening uh, was mentioned, and and that was missed. Um, and alternatively, you know, someone said, "Oh no, in Israel there is a massive protest," but if you looked out the window, it was. Uh, couple of people with placards um obviously we, we've we can build brilliant protective surveillance uh, you know protective intelligence systems but but then when we outsource them how do we how do we make sure that the good stuff comes into that machine it's a great question and this gets back into the whole concept of of ground truth right uh for example uh, I can recall a vivid problem not too long ago with uh, one of a, a client that I was working with that could not get a handle on carjackings in South Africa. And in essence, uh, this chief security officer had even 
hired the one of the former heads of the South African police. And that person could not get a handle on that either. And then they reached out to me and said, how are you going to go about collecting this kind of data? And I said, some problems aren't fixable, meaning you might not have a solution to this problem. If the former head of the South African police cannot, on the ground in Cape Town, cannot figure out the carjacking problem, you're not going to have an automated feed that will, nor am I going to be able to do that. Simply put, there's too many of them to collect, or you don't have the reporting of that coming into any kind of feed to include the the cops. Now, that's not a that's not an answer that most clients want to hear, but it's reality. And I think in our business, that's part of the challenge, meaning the challenge is the haystack today of information, the the fire hose, whatever you want to call it. That was never the challenge when I was early on in this business. We never had enough intelligence. Now the question becomes, how do I make sense of the intelligence I'm collecting? And that boils back to your intelligence requirements that you're collecting against. Is it something as simple as the name of your CEO and maybe their spouse? Or is it all of your executives? Is it just your company name? Or is it those catch-all phrases of guns, bombs, shooting, active shooting, kidnapping, whatever that might be? And you'll tend to see that you also are flooded with things like that because you'll get every crime that's that's happened in, a, in and around the city of Chicago, which would be endless, right? So uh, it becomes really an intelligence analytical problem, but you can be able to set up with your software platform partners, great filters to be able to weed that down to a trickle so you only get what you deem you deem as important. Not what the system deems, not what others might think is important, but what you think is important to your operations. And that might be a square block in New York City, right? or in downtown London. So it's really going to depend upon what your remit is and that threat stream that you're collecting against. No, that makes, that makes sense. And, and I think, I think that sheds a lot of light on maybe what the protector is going to have to deal with uh, themselves, because maybe the protector will not go to night school and become uh, an intelligence analyst later in life. Maybe it doesn't require night school. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that maybe, it's about SaaS tweaking. It's 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 about it's about you know working with third parties to be bespoke, um, so that you don't rock up in Egypt and find out that there are pyramids, um, which, <laughs> which something people like to say. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I, you're I, spot on with that. You're you're spot on with that. If your third party vendor, or however you've got your SaaS based product set up, if you're getting too much, you have a problem that needs to be readjusted. And it's been my experience in this space that uh, there's enough vendors in this business. If they're not listening, you have a lot of choices and a lot of options, right? And sometimes you have to make the hard decisions. But my point is, is that if you're not getting the intelligence feeds that you need to help you do your job as a protector, 
then you need to look for another partner. Yeah. Um, which, which, yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, there's, there's a lot of people offering feeds. Um, I guess the systems of systems, they are not as, as, uh, frequently found but but there are lots of people saying plug in this feed plug in that feed um which which i think i can 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 only be a good thing as as people tailor it um so taking advantage of the fact that you can give us a beautiful overview of protection i want to maybe ask why what what you think we're going to be protecting in the years to come because the evolution of what an executive is and is not okay you've got the high net worth individual they've employed you and whatever that that that's fine but but i'd be interested in your in your reflections on what an executive has been and will be uh throughout throughout the ages um i i know a little spoiler uh, some people have suggested that we protect system administrators um who are, have the complete keys to the it kingdom right and currently they they are not protected in that way so 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 across the across time evolution of uh executives uh please your thoughts yeah that's a good point and i see a lot of misdirected resources at times because that's just the way we've always done things right they're stuck in that fighting the last war protecting that last exec because that's the way we've always done things and change is hard Change is hard in this business. Forecasting over the horizon, which I've done for many years in my previous capacity, is difficult to do. What I see more and more developing, which I'm really excited about, is I see corporate security departments doing two things. One, at least in the continental United States, they're going it alone. They no longer can rely upon public safety, your traditional police resources to help you. At times, you will get no response by the cops in some cities to certain kinds of crime. Therefore, that burden has been shifted back to the private sector to safeguard employees, safeguarding customers. You are literally on your own. It's kind of a difficult mindset to wrap your 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 mind around but when you start looking at just practical response times to crimes in progress, at least here in the United States, I don't know about Europe, they're drastically increasing. And in some cases, they're not showing up at all. So that's the first thing you have to think about if you're looking over the horizon. How am I going to protect my company operating in Kansas City or in Austin, Texas, knowing that my 911 call may or may not come? different way of thinking of problems. And even your C-suite will have a hard time wrapping their head around that unless they're watching the daily news every day where this is constantly there, right? So that's the first problem. The second thing for multinational corporations that I see that I really, really like is that you see lots of Fortune 100 companies, Fortune 1000 companies standing up their own geopolitical intelligence unit inside of corporate security that actually is getting as much visibility as that executive protection boss. Everybody knows that executive protection boss is because they're always with that CEO. But now more and more companies are relying upon their internal security team to be that provider 
of the analytical content on the world stage. What do I mean by that? Where do you see the war going in the Ukraine? Where do you see NATO's response being? What if, what if, God forbid, Putin does cook off a nuke? What is the ramifications to us, the second and third level impacts? What if China does move on Taiwan? What does that do to my supply chain? And I see that happening more and more. And so when I talk to young kids wanting to get in this business, I usually encourage them to go through two different jobs. Become a protective intelligence analyst and help out your team to protect your people, places, and executives. Or look in the realm of private sector intelligence where you're providing that geopolitical analytical analysis to your C-suite so they can make some business decisions. And that is really trending up. I see that more and more happening. A business business enabler rather than a department of no. Um, exactly. No, you can't do that. Or no, uh, you know, it, your answer should always be yes, but, mm -hmm. right? Instead of no. You know, can we go to Kabul? Eh, it's probably not a good idea, but let us take a look to see if maybe we can get you in and out kind of thing mm. instead of just a flat out no. Yeah, I think... And, and and that would, of course, differ if it's a high net worth, uh, you know, um, family office type environment and, uh, and and corporate. But the yes, but I think is is universal. Um, and, and it's interesting what you said about the evolution of internal protective intelligence, and internal uh, geopolitical intelligence, especially these last three years. We we, we don't want to get into too much uh, of the last three years because, you know, people we all live through it. Um, but but maybe there's an element of some information not being available as readily and so probably a good idea for companies do you, do you, do you think it's been a wake-up call for companies to invest in their own protective intelligence absolutely and we saw this surface out of the pandemic meaning you could look at back when i was in the government ages ago every national intelligence estimate i don't care which one you read from what country would always say that there's a probability of that it might be a black swan event low probability, high impact. But when it does happen, meaning if you go back before the pandemic hit us and you had gone to your boss and said, hey, boss, I'm worried about a global pandemic that's going to shut down our company and nobody's ever going to go to work again for the next year. Your boss would have looked at you and said, don't you have more important things to do? My point with that is this, that that really was a wake-up call from the boards to the C-suite down to the CSO to the creation of chief risk officers, legal officers now worried about this globally to the point now that that is really a good talking point for those trying to develop this kind of program because rest assured, if China moves on Taiwan, there's serious ramifications to all of us around the globe and there's going to be an impact to your company. Now, if you are that security officer listening to this podcast today, and if you not thought about how that could impact your business and how you do your job, you need to start thinking about that big time. God forbid it ever happens, but you need to start thinking about that. Same thing with how this war is going to progress in Europe, much closer home to you. 
as well as things such as what if Israel does conduct a preemptive strike on Iran? What are the ramifications to us? Where is my personnel located in the Middle East? Do I have a footprint in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem? Uh, how am I going to get my people out if uh, air travel stops? So these are the kinds of things that you really can start thinking about and really provide value to your entire corporation. Even if you're a one-person shop, you can do some of these things. Perfect. And and I, and I dare imagine that that type of uh, desktop, uh, tabletop training is more engaging than, so you know, it's a spreadsheet, uh, this and uh, someone broke through a door that um, I think I think that, that there would be some actual training entertainment value, something engaging for your staff if you do deal with Black Swan events, um, which I, I, I don't know. I'm just I maybe answers on a postcard. Do you think that you know, listenership? Do you do you think that that is an engaging form of training? I I I do hope uh, I do hope so. Um. Uh, so 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 Fred, what is next for you? I, I see. Um. Obviously, this is audio, but on your shelves you have some fantastic uh, books behind you. Um. What uh what what should people look out for moving forward and uh and, and perhaps in in the canon of books that you've written, what 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 would you like to tell people about? Well, thank you so much for uh, raising that question. Yes, I've been fortunate or blessed to have been published and. Uh, I do have a couple more books on the horizon. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not at liberty to discuss the subject of them at this point because that's still in uh, my uh, people's hands, as we would like to say, my agent's hands and and publishers. But stay tuned. Uh, and I would certainly encourage uh, anybody that's interested in the topic of protective intelligence to, to visit our Center for Protective Intelligence. Uh, all of our content is free. And so that was one of the uh, points when we started doing this that we wanted to make. We wanted to provide thought leadership in this space, history, current trends and tactics, as well as over the horizon kinds of things. And uh, I always say this in any of the interviews or podcasts that I'm doing, if there's anything that I could do to help any of your listeners understand this topic or try to figure out how we got here, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me and you can reach me through our Center for Protective Intelligence uh, easy enough. Fantastic. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure if they do want to read a book you have previously written, they're, they're, they're in all good bookstores um, and, uh, and, and and available or maybe maybe a site because we can we can put a site in the um, the, the show notes for, for, for today's session. Oh, well, that's awesome. Well, uh, I have my own uh, website, which is uh, officialfredburton.com, officialfredburton.com, and all of my books are available there. Uh, and my last book uh, was the story of uh, the CIA station chief that was kidnapped and murdered in, in Beirut, Lebanon. I tend to want to look at stories that have a protector's mindset or lens through these events so we can all learn from some of these horrific disasters that's happened in the past. Fantastic. And 
and that is uh, preemptive protective intelligence in, uh, in 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 at work, isn't it? Um, I think I think that's a that's a fantastic place uh, to to leave it on. Obviously, there are so many other aspects we could have looked at. Uh, we could have done a complete history tour de force of protection, uh, looking at your you know from your vantage point. Um, but 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 I think this is a fantastic look at the evolution of protective intelligence and EP. Um, so, Fred. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been wonderful uh, finally having you on. And uh, from myself and, of course, our entire team, this has been another fantastic edition of the Circuit Magazine podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the Circuit Podcast. Well, thank you very much. Fred uh, for coming onto the Circuit Magazine and really sharing your wealth of experience. It's it, it's a it's a it's a vast career. I'm back with Sean West. Uh, Sean, how 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 was today's session for you? No, it was great. It was um, and, and I guess Fred touched on what we spoke about in the intro before we actually went into the conversation. Exactly what I was saying. It, protective intelligence is definitely an area that is growing and something you know we all need to be more aware of. Moving forward, especially the way landscape's growing with you know tools that are out there, um, people definitely need to take a look and you know try and make more use of these. Um, it was just interesting that he spoke about. There seems to be a shift of companies, you know, not not relying on government intelligence now because maybe they don't have the intelligence dedicated to what they want, or you know they just don't want to share it. Um, so if you need something specific form of intelligence, you need to go out there, find it yourself, or get a third party who can provide you that intelligence. And you know, there's a lot of tools popping up there now. Um, I mean, just on the the personal front, what one um, perfect example of something an app that shares intelligence ways, <laughs> you know, the, the navigation device, you know, just intelligence on the road for individual users. You know, driving along, there's an accident on the road. You, you see people tagging, you know. There's a car accident there, traffic, and the traffic will divert. That's just a, a simplified version of intelligence, um, not on the protective front, but of a simple tool that's out there where people put into and provide intelligence of something that's going on in an area um, specific to where they're going. Yeah, that's right. And and maybe then it's the job of the protector to trust but verify or, you know, uh, become a, an analyst and and sort of say, oh, does this does this make sense? Um, maybe it is the job of an external agency. I I, I don't know, but I but I sense there is, as uh, as Fred suggested, a shift um, a shift towards the public uh, sort of hands um, and 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 getting to grips with this. Yeah, I mean, there's um, many companies have the dedicated tools out there, but I think it's also good within your networks. You know, I think another thing that was spoken about at one of your events was. In London, there's a different groups out there, intelligence network on WhatsApp, so all operators in different areas of different parts of London. You know, they'll, they'll tag on there. There's a protest in Paul Mall um, taking place tomorrow, and they'll tag these events. And it's just another little outlet, a bit of reach that you can see. And exactly what you said, you know, you have to look at this information. It comes to you. Then you go and verify it by doing your own research. You know, you, you, you kind of go and get all this information yourself all of the time you rely on other providing as well and it's a, it's a give and take scenario you you know if you're aware of something happening you can post it up there and it's, it's an information share which can help the operation that you're going on i like it and um 
the uh, the the other interesting thing to note is that Fred is connected to something that we are a media partner for and are supporting, aren't uh, isn't he? Yeah, it's great. Fred's um, going to be speaking at the Bodyguards for Children event on the 18th and 19th of March, which is a fantastic event, which the circuit are proud to be a media sponsor of. Um, Pelham, you will have the link that you can share with our audience and get people to um, send the donations. You know, make a donation helps the children out there, and also gives you access to a whole range of guest speakers. So it's not just a give; you're receiving as well. That's right, and and I will put the link in our description uh, in inside the podcast. Um, and uh, yes, that donation will be your ticket to the event. Um, and uh, I will be co-moderating it with uh, uh, Chuck Randolph, who is, of course, uh, working with Fred. And uh, and so and so and so, actually, it was a suggestion initially of Chuck that uh, that we reach out finally to Fred and, and bring him on the podcast. So that's that's nicely squaring a circle. And what what else have we got coming up, Sean? Um, we're working on the next issue of the Circuit Magazine. Uh, we're also looking for new podcast contributors um we need to get some more queued up so if you are interested drop us a line um there's certainly some good people at your event your in-person event in london pelham which i'm sure we can drag along and get them on the show um some great viewpoints some great stories there which i'm sure people will be happy to share and listen to that's right yeah so if you have a story to uh, share or or perhaps a, a particular topic you think we are not covering uh I, you know, we very much do want to hear from you. We will keep uh, plugging away. We've got, we've had, we've had some very diverse topics this year already, ranging from adding an MD to your team and then uh, threat intel and uh, the the asymmetric pr protector. Lots of different topics already, but we have an entire year, so uh, we're very pleased if you would come forward and let us know what you want. But uh, yes, please keep all your comments coming. Uh, the BBA Connect app is very, very active. So thank you for uh, you know supporting that and, and, and continuing to chat and boost the community. The NABA Protector app as well, of course. Elijah is spearheading lots of great discussions there along with the entire community. But I'm very much looking forward to the 18th and 19th of March when we are supporting the Bodyguards for Kids event uh, in aid of St. Jude's uh, Children's Hospital. And uh, you will see uh, more of Fred Burton there as he speaks uh, at, at the event. So please look in our description uh, below in the notes of this uh, podcast and see how you can sign up. Right, that is the future of protective intelligence and EP uh, through the wonderful perspective and wealth of knowledge of Fred Burton. From Sean and myself, this has been truly another fantastic edition of the Circuit Magazine podcast. You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.